0: jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello travellers, I'm Joe Francis Penn, and in this episode I talked to Doug Walsh, who made a plan with his wife to cycle around the world, but lots of things happened along the way that meant they had to change their plans. Because life happened, but also because of the way they felt about things. We do talk about some of the cycling highlights and the places they visited. But I found this discussion particularly interesting because changing plans is an important part of travel. So I love planning trips and of course, especially if you're going to cycle around the world, you do need to plan your trip. And uh, if it's fun for you to plan, then that's something you'll spend a lot of time on. But changing plans is sometimes necessary and being flexible and allowing time for getting off the treadmill of a schedule is sometimes what keeps you sane while travelling. Even if you're doing a short break, like a long weekend in a city, I've learned that you shouldn't pack it back to back with activities. (laughs) I've learned the hard way, like I I can visit three museums today. Uh, No, (laughs) leave some time for serendipity and wandering around and also for adapting to the way you feel. As Doug talks about how he and his wife sometimes go their separate ways in order to experience a place in a way that they want to. So traveling is also about learning about yourself. Yes, there are incredible moments of natural beauty or stunning architecture, wonderful food and visiting places that inspire you. But it's the emotional experience that changes you along the way. We talk a lot about fear in this episode, and that is so resonant right now as I record this introduction in October 2020 during a pandemic year. Fear of what might happen, fear of personal safety, fear of others, fear of loss, fear of pain and injury and yes, fear of death. These are all valid and everyone feels them at some level. But your experience of fear will depend on how you mitigate those fears and decide to do something anyway because of the possibility of greater reward. I've travelled in the Middle East on my own and I've felt safe. I feel safe in London and New York, cities that many consider unsafe. But then I have made sure that I adapt my behaviour to the culture. For example, I wore a wedding ring even when I was single in the Middle East and covered my hair and dressed modestly so as not to draw attention. Doug actually mentions loving Naples in Italy and actually I felt unsafe there even though at the time we were part of a tour group and in fact that may have been the point, you know, tour groups are uh, sometimes they attract uh, more trouble and in these pandemic times we've all experienced fear even about situations we wouldn't have thought twice about in the past. And uh, for example, one of the things I really that upsets me is if I'm walking along a path, you know, and there's an old person and, and I feel like, well, you know, I should have two meters and I might step off the pavement and uh, 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 to avoid being in their space in order to protect them. But I hate that somebody who's older and maybe needs protecting is afraid of me or is afraid of being close to me. And these are things that are um, difficult at this time. But equally, we have to consider the real and appropriate fears uh, about the world. We prepare for travel by understanding that there are risks. For example, we take anti-malaria pills if you travel to a place with malaria. We make sure that people know where we are if we travel alone. We carry backup money or cards in different places. So if something gets stolen, we have other options. We do Really practical things to keep ourselves safe. And of course, in these pandemic times, it involves masks, sanitizer, social distancing, avoiding hotspots, but also (laughs) travellers, memento mori. Remember, you will die. (laughs) And uh, of course, this is... Something that I think we all acknowledge you know in in this show and i've I talked to Dr. Karen Wyatt about grief travel uh, in um, coming up in a couple of weeks, I'm talking to Lauren Rhodes about cemetery travel, and you know these things happen we will never be able to mitigate every single risk out there in the world, and if we let fear stop us from doing anything, we will not be living anymore, which is why this week. <laughs> I'm actually walking the Beckett Way pilgrimage from Southwark in London to Canterbury in the southeast of England. It's actually only about two hours from my house, but it is a walk uh, during pandemic times. Obviously, it is the most socially distanced thing I can do, walking alone in nature for a number of days. And I will be doing a solo episode on it at some point. In the meantime, you can check out the pictures on Instagram or Facebook at JFPenAuthor. So on that note, let's get into the interview. Doug Walsh is a former game strategy author and travel writer. His novel, Tailwinds Past Florence, is a romantic adventure with a time travel twist based on cycling around the world with his wife, Kristen. Welcome, Doug.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on, Joe. This is a a real treat.
0: Oh, no, it's exciting to talk to you. So let's start with the kind of big question, which is why on earth did you decide to cycle around the world?
1: It was one of those things where I I remember the night vividly. I just, my wife and I were sharing an upstairs office. She was in business school at the time. I've been working from home as a video game writer, um, writing strategy guides. And I, we knew we weren't going to have kids at that point. And I just turned to her one day and I said, Hey, what do you say, like when the dogs get old and aren't here anymore, we take a year off and travel? And at first, we we're like, oh, we can rent out the house, take a ferry to Alaska. We live outside of Seattle in the Northwest uh, of the US, and we could take a train across Canada, fly to Paris, go to Thailand. And then little by little, that just morphed into we'll sell everything we own, buy bicycles, and we'll spend three years traveling the world by bicycle. Um, Not really sure how it evolved into that. It just snowballed. We were always active. I did a lot of mountain biking. We used to do triathlon when we were younger. And it just seemed like instead of hopscotching around the world and just seeing places we can go slower stretch our dollars see the world 60 miles a day and just let it come to us not Mm. really sure that's a good answer in hindsight but it's how we ended up there
0: were you escaping something as in you were because a lot of people were unhappy with the way their life is going and so they want to change their lives by doing a a big trip like this but it, it doesn't sound like that was where you guys were
1: I think there was some burnout going on, especially with my job. I guess we started, we left on the trip in 2014, but it took a good six years of paying off student loans and car payments and credit cards and all that. We had a lot of debt. We were very irresponsible when we were younger. We got married right out of college and just immediately went from having no money to a small amount of money, but thought we were rich. (laughs) But so it was more of escaping the burnout and then just looking around at the house and realizing we're not going to have kids and this is a bigger house than we need. And the dogs aren't going to live forever. And let's just shake it up. Let's have an adventure in our lives and not wait around until a retirement that wasn't guaranteed.
0: Mm, I know everyone's thinking now what happened to the dogs? (laughs)
1: We had two lovely Siberian Huskies and they just got old. They were about seven, eight years old when we started thinking about the trip and we knew they couldn't live forever. So we let them determine when we would leave.
0: Oh, okay. So they did stay with you until their their doggy end or something. Yes.
1: Oh yes. Oh yes. wow. Well that's <laughs> lovely
0: because you so you gave them the time they needed and then you left, which is great. So no, that's interesting. So let's talk about the trip itself. So what were some of the highlights? What are the things like even years later you still remember?
1: There There is a couple of moments and that really always jumped to mind. We left Seattle on a March morning and managed to largely avoid snow going across the northern U.S. and Canada, and um, it was about five thousand miles before we wrapped up in in New Jersey visiting our family. And I got to say, like the first moment that we smelled the Atlantic Ocean hitting a little island on the coast of Maine, that was the like one of the most emotional moments of the whole trip. Just realizing that by just waking up every day, getting back on the bikes, we managed to cycle across North America at at almost its widest point. Um, And that was a real moment for us to just smile and be proud of what we had accomplished. Other highlights I'd be remiss if I didn't mention just the people and the generosity that we felt just so many people coming out to us, jumping out of their car in front of us on the side of the road and just saying, hey, do you need a place to stay tonight? You want to camp in my yard? And other people, we met a couple. <clears throat> One of the hooks that we had with the trip was that I decided we're not going to take any airplanes. We're going to take ships. And so we crossed the Atlantic on the Queen Mary too. Here's something for those people thinking of ever doing a trip like this. I don't know about all cruise lines, but Cunard will let you bring bicycles fully loaded with panniers on board the ship and just wheel them into your cabin as long as they fit in the room. So that was nice. But we met a couple on the ship that said, Hey, you really have to come to Hamburg. If you're ever going to be there, call us and we'd love to have have you over. And we were like, we're not really planning on going through Hamburg. But then we changed our mind a month later after cycling through the UK and Denmark, I emailed her And she said, actually, I'm in in Berlin with her husband, but she'll leave the key with the neighbor and (laughs) we'll let ourselves in. And so we cycle into Hamburg. The neighbor comes over, gives us the key. We go in and she had all these little post-it notes all throughout the kitchen with our names on them. And she fully stocked the fridge with all manner of food and beer and coffee. and, And then she came home the next night and took us out to dinner. And it was just like, holy cow, we spoke with you for five minutes on a cruise ship a month ago. and It was just mind-blowing, that level of generosity. So that was definitely a moment. And then off the bikes, I can't – I will never, ever forget Naples on New Year's. If you've never been to Naples, Italy for New Year's Eve, it is just absolutely bonkers. I'm not sure how it's safe or legal or any of that, but 60,000 people – in the town square, live music and entertainment from, I think it was 9 PM until 6 AM. And then at midnight, everyone just seemed to have borderline illegal fireworks that they were just pulling out of their coat pockets and launching when we're all packed in shoulder to shoulder. It was out of this world. So that was something I'll never forget either.
0: So that's so interesting. I have been to Naples and I'm not at New Year, but I would say that you mentioned like borderline legal. I I think Naples is one of those uh, slightly Wild West type cities uh, where a lot goes on but it's very interesting for sure so uh, you mentioned a few places that you meant uh, you enjoyed and found were highlights were there any other stunning locations either nat- natural locations or cities that you cycled through and went yeah we want to come back here
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, part of the trip, we ended up spending about two months in Italy cycling from Livorno, where we uh, disembarked a ferry that we had taken from Morocco. And we made our way all the way to the southern, the heel of the boot, as you'd say. We ended up doing a large lap around the Puglia and Salento regions, waiting for the banks in Greece to open. And the just cycling East of Rome, going through uh, the mountains there in the center of Italy, and then down along the coast was just stunningly beautiful. Uh, and then when we got to Greece, we lapped Cephalonian across the Peloponnese, and we did laps on, uh, lap around Crete, and just every day pedaling from one gorgeous beachfront campground to another. Those were amazing days, even though it was 100 degrees Fahrenheit almost every single day while we were there. The other real highlights, too, is, of course, going through Tuscany, these little hilltop towns. And when we were in Tuscany, it was in the winter. And it seemed like most of the tourists weren't there. It was a little cold, a little rainy. But all these beautiful hilltop villages just decked out with Christmas lights and decorations. And we felt like we had it all to ourselves with just a few locals because there weren't many people there at that time that weren't who weren't residents so those are definitely a few of the highlights. And then we fell in love with Spain, absolutely fell in love with Spain. We cycled from Pamplona down through Siena to Madrid or Madrid to Siena, and then all the way down to Algeciras, where we took a ferry to Morocco. And it was such a neat contrast of city and rural and mountain and it was, it was the only place that we cycled through that reminded us a bit of the Western United States, where you can go from a city and into the mountains so abruptly, or a small town and into the mountains so abruptly. That was one of the places that scratched that homesickness itch, which we were starting to get from time to time.
0: Yeah, I love Spain too. I go back to Spain again and again. Uh, it's the, one of those countries I could definitely live in because it just has so much that I love. <laughs> Yeah. But interesting, that you mentioned a bit of homesickness. So, what were some of the difficult times and the issues and doubts and fears that you face?
1: Doing a trip like this and especially traveling with my wife and knowing that we wouldn't be cycling side by side all the time, I definitely had concerns for her safety. Our biggest fear was dogs and cars. We did carry small things of pepper spray. And people assumed that it was a concern for people, but it was actually for just dogs. And that did become a bit of a problem in Morocco when we were going through the uh, Middle Atlas Mountains, just having packs of very territorial loose dogs out in the mountains. And when you're climbing up a mountain, you can only go three, four, five miles per hour. The dogs can run a lot faster than that. So at one point I had to ride interference and we're two dog lovers, but here I am holding my bicycle lock as a weapon, just trying to make sure that the dogs aren't biting us. We also ran into a problem with kids in Morocco where they would bicycle up to us and grab onto the bike and demand candy. And that was very nerve wracking just because it was, it was dangerous for us, dangerous for them. And just, I didn't handle the violation of personal space. Morocco was one of the places I was most looking forward to on the trip when we left and it ended up being the only place I got sick. I ended up basically bedridden for about seven days just with what I now call stress-induced flu from just not being able to really adapt to that violation of personal space and just the constant threat from dogs and, and even kids. That was very stressful.
0: That's so interesting. And uh, I know other cyclists have mentioned dogs before, but that violation of personal space is interesting because what did you find in Asia or other countries where most people have a different uh, view of space?
1: Our original plan was to go across Turkey, up into Georgia, through Azerbaijan and across Central Asia to Western China. Unfortunately, my wife's father fell really ill. And we ended up going home and spending his final months with him, taking a break from the trip. We left all of our gear and everything in Rome. And that ended up throwing off our schedule so that by the time we got to Turkey, it was already October. And we knew going through the mountains of Central Asia and into China and and visas were always going to be a question mark for that. But we would have been hitting 11,000 foot mountains in January. And that just doesn't work. So we couldn't do the initial plan that was going to go through China. And now the reason I bring this all up is because I had also learned from our month in Morocco that I probably wasn't going to handle China very well. You learn something about yourself on a trip like this. And I learned that for me, I, I just didn't handle, like I was saying, the personal space violation and just and the questionable fear of being taken advantage of or always you know, being hassled. There was a lot of that in Morocco. I don't want to pile on Morocco. We actually had some of our best memories in Morocco. The food is wonderful. The country is absolutely stunningly beautiful. But I learned a lot about myself in Morocco. Just to circle back to just another difficult time, and that was that we did face one moment In Minnesota, of all places, in northern Minnesota, where we did have a fright, where we thought we were going to get robbed, or there was, you know, potential for a violent encounter. Fortunately, it turned out to be nothing. But we ran across this guy who seemed really down on his luck, homeless, walking from um, one town to another. And he disappeared. And then he came back in the dark. And he made a comment like, wow, my life would be a lot easier if I had one of those bikes. And it was like, oh gosh, we're camped at a small park two miles outside of this tiny town in northern Minnesota. And the bicycles were locked to a post, but it was just the three of us. And I ended up standing between this fella and the bicycles and with my hand in my my hands in my pockets, one hand on the little thing of pepper spraying, another hand on my three-inch, you know, pocket knife, just thinking, oh gosh, please don't make this an altercation that we're both going to regret. And fortunately, nothing ended up happening. But man, that was a very tenseful few moments. And then his friends came and picked them up eventually. And that was even scarier because now we are like, oh, gosh, now there's five of them. But other than that, we didn't have any major scares, fortunately.
0: It's interesting because one of the reasons people don't do these big trips is because they have a fear of, bad things happening. So you've mentioned the potent, the potential of crime, the uh, invasion of personal space, getting sick, the dogs when you're on a bike. These are all valid fears that you actually did face. But I feel like many people worry about those things and don't even go. So did you think about that before you left? And was the trip worth going through those things? What would you say to people who do worry about those difficult times?
1: Oh, I would say to absolutely go for it. And that these can, these things that I just mentioned, would I cycle across Morocco again, knowing what I know now? Probably not. I'd certainly go back and hang out in Tangier. We love Tangier. When we embarked on the trip, our main fears was, okay, be aware of drivers. And with cell phones distracting more and more people in their cars every day that was our number one fear my mother's fear was that isis was going to be waiting behind a bush for us to cycle past and that was <laughs> <laughs> that was her biggest fear in we, italy <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe in turkey we did get about 300 miles from the syrian border in 2015 and that was i think a there was a bomb that went off in Ankara the day after we cycled through Ankara. So that was a little close for comfort. We didn't let our parents know where we were at that point in time because they still were, even though we're in our forties. The other concerns, dogs, everybody's, everybody's encountered a wild dog. You don't have to worry about that. The only time anything got stolen from us was a small $30 bike computer off my wife's bicycle which was left in the lobby at a hotel in Pamplona. And I'm pretty sure a couple of mountain bikers who were cycling the Camino um, took it because they were the only other people who probably would have known what it was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So it was worth it is the message.
1: It was worth it. Obviously there are stories out there of, of tragedy. One of the roads we cycled in Canada, I believe it's route 17 that goes along the Northern shore of Lake Superior the one or two summers before we left, there was a I think it was a complete family of four hit and killed by a truck on cycling that road. And when we got there, we realized that there's no shoulder on that highway. And that was very scary. We've heard couples getting hit by a car in Thailand and worse things happening to couples while they were camping or women camping together in other parts of the world. But I always tell myself the reason we hear about these things is because they're uncommon. And that's what makes them newsworthy, not because they're a fear that happens on a regular basis that we need to commit to memory and avoid. Um, Mm.
0: I think what's also interesting is that you obviously your your father in law was sick and that changed your uh, journey. But also, it sounds like you almost changed your intention and you change and you changed as people as well along the way. And I feel like sometimes people plan these trips and then they they're like, I must finish the trip in the way that I planned. But what you guys did was go, this is, we we need to change this because of life or because of our preference or because of situation. And that meant you learned different things. So how, I guess, how gently do you need to hold a plan when you do a trip like this and, and be open to possibilities and also situations?
1: That's an excellent question. I think there are two things that play into how we handled it. And on the one hand, we ended up being a lot less spontaneous than we thought we would be. We ended up stopping every five days, planning our route for the following five days, and very seldom veering from it. We did end up going to Hamburg based on that recommendation. but Largely, we just went where we originally planned to go and didn't let much get in the way of that. That said, as you mentioned, my father-in-law's illness and then death did cause us to change our plan. We couldn't go through Central Asia because winter. So we ended up doubling back through. We did a big loop through Turkey, about 1,300 miles through Turkey, and then made our way back to Athens and boarded a cargo ship to take it from Athens all the way to Malaysia. And that was 19 days at sea. And it was on that cargo ship where I wrote the outline to my novel. And we were thinking like, okay, maybe we'll just go to Bali for a couple of months. We'll rent a house in Bali for a few months and I'll write the book, or maybe we'll cycle through Southeast Asia. And right before we got on that cargo ship, my wife's former employer emailed her with an offer to come back to work. And it was really interesting timing because even like before we went back home to spend time with my father-in-law, We got to the point where every day, all we were talking about was, wouldn't it be nice to just rent an apartment in Pamplona for a month? Wouldn't it be nice to just go back to Florence for a couple of weeks? And it was part of this every three months, like clockwork, we got burned out. It took about three to four months to get across North America. And we had that month off with family before we boarded the the cruise ship. And then three months later, when we were in Morocco and then Italy, it was just like all we wanted to do, all we talked about was just taking some time off. And I think that's where you have to be open to sudden change and the spontaneity a bit is just to listen to your body and your heart.
0: I love to hear that actually, because I'm somebody who I much prefer short trips to a specific place for a specific reason. Me and my husband cycled down the southwest coast of India a few years back. And that was like three weeks. And then I was done with cycling around india but there was some of the <laughs> stresses that you guys had as well but it was i loved it but i was like okay I'm, I'm really done now take me back to my local coffee shop and whatever and i think you bring up a great point which is traveling is it's so exciting often or it's so stressful in a good way and a bad way that you that it's very tiring it's not as you say lying on a beach in bali that's not traveling that's a holiday and you guys right. were traveling so i think that it's great that you talk. Talk about the reality of what the life was like on the road. And like sometimes digi- the digital nomad life, I feel like people get tired of that as well, like always moving around.
1: Yeah, I I can definitely foresee that happening. We were ready to just call the quits once or twice and kept going. And we like to say, it's you know, borrowing that phrase from the Peace Corps. The Peace Corps says, oh, it's the toughest job you'll ever love bicycle traveling around the world is the toughest vacation you'll ever love. And there's something that's romantic and exhilarating about waking up every morning and knowing your only concerns are where are you headed, food, water, and shelter. And that's pretty much it. But that gets exhausting after a while. And for us, it was really neat to see that every three months on like, just you can almost set a calendar to it every three months we would just look at each other and be like, I need a week or two off. After three months and we got to Tangier, we spent a week in Tangier and thought, okay, that'll be enough to recharge our batteries. And it wasn't. And we spent a month in Morocco and we got to Merzouga on the edge of the Sahara. And we just looked at each other and was like, there's no way we're cycling all the way back to Tangier to catch that ferry to Italy. So we ended up paying a driver. The only time we ever put our bikes on anything other than a ship or a train to get to uh, Scotland from Southampton. We uh, we tied our bikes to the top of a taxi and paid someone, I don't know, it was several hundred dollars to drive us from Rizuga back to Tangier. And then we got on that ferry. It was a two-night ferry all the way to, to Italy from Morocco. And mm. we arrived at 11 p.m. when it was freezing cold in this early December. And we go to this hotel And we woke up the next morning, and this is the biggest dose of culture shock we faced on the whole trip. We woke up the next morning, threw open the curtains and realized that right outside our hotel was a whole Christmas shopping village. And (laughs) after a month in Morocco to wake up the next morning in an Italian Christmas village was just, it was your brain does that like cartoon short circuit. (laughs) And, um, but that was what we needed. And we needed just to have that
0: yeah and it's interesting because of course you've written a romance based on traveling and I've traveled alone a lot and I've traveled with my husband and other partners along the way. And there are always difficulties on the road when you travel with someone else. It may be that you disagree with where you're going or how you're getting there, or one of you feels something and the other one doesn't, or one of you gets sick. And so how did you and your wife manage your different choices? And what are your tips on having a relationship that thrives on a trip like that?
1: Profanity a lot of profanity, more of it than we've been married 23 years and we cursed at each other more in those two years than all the other years combined, unfortunately. But that's that was part of it. And you understand in the heat of the moment when you're sweaty and you're exhausted and the wind has been in your face for five hours and there's mountains, Like there's just going to be those moments. But part of it also was learning to be apart as much as you can. And when you're sharing a tent or sharing small motel rooms, that's not always possible, but we didn't cycle next to each other. And we certainly didn't ride a tandem bicycle. No way. Um, yeah, I can't imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> and for one practical reason, it ends up having the amount of luggage that you can take. Mm-hmm. You need each bike to have four panniers and a duffel. If you're going to do something like this, in my opinion, but for the most part, we rode separately throughout the day, We would regroup for um, snacks. We had a plan of that if someone wanted to stop, we would give each other a three-day cooling-off period. We wouldn't make any rash decisions, but we wouldn't also try to talk someone into or out of something else. If it got bad enough where somebody was really reluctant to go on, and this didn't end up happening, but we knew we decided ahead of time we would just get a hotel spend a couple of days on the down on just hanging out and then see where we felt later on. And that was what ended up leading to our going home and spending time with her father. It was just that feeling like neither one of us wanted to continue. We needed to take a break. That said, we did learn a trick that we now use in all of our subsequent travels. And that is whenever we get to a big city and we know we're going to spend a few days somewhere or a small town, if we're going to be there for a few days Always take a day to just go our separate ways. we hadn't done that. We left in March, and it was finally on my birthday in October in paris and we We were sitting there in bed in the morning, and she asked me, what do I want to do for my birthday and It had been on my mind for a while, and I just looked at her and you have to understand our relationship in order to not think I'm a total jerk for saying this, but <laughs> I just said honestly. I would love to not see you at all today until dinner time, and she just she had so much relief in her eyes when I said that, and she was like, "Oh, I was hoping you would say that." And from then on, whenever we were in a city, we always made sure one day we would wake up and go our separate ways and re- and regroup for dinner. And we both learned how to be better travelers by doing that, especially my wife, because she often relies on my navigation skills or or my bartering or whatever.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I feel like we're happily child free as well by choice. And when you travel as two independent people who love each other very much, but equally, you're both independent, and you enjoy different things sometimes, (laughs) then I think that's exactly a great way to deal with it. And Uh, Yeah, we definitely, when we've been on cycle trips or walking trips, even we don't spend all day together. And I think that is a really good tip actually, and a very honest one. And sometimes I feel like maybe you don't want to suffocate each other when you, when it is just the two of you. And I can definitely relate to that in in my marriage as well.
1: Yeah, that's good. That's good. And I think most relationships, there's always going to be a person who's, a little bit more dominant or a little bit more outgoing personality and ends up kind of steering things, even if they don't realize it. And it's good when you go separate because it gives the other person a chance to gain some travel skills on their own and be the leader of their own trip, even if just for half of a day or something like that.
0: And then I, just staying on Romantic Places, because of course you, you have uh, written a romantic adventure. And yeah. what I, I found, especially in Italy, like you mentioned how much you love Italy. And it's so funny because I have felt, and I, I did a podcast episode on Venice about this and how Venice was the city of romance. Uh, and then I went there and it was just not, it, it wasn't at all. It was <laughs> flooded and it smelt of the sewers and it just wasn't great. And you have Florence in, in the title of your book. And again, I've been there at Florence Florence in high summer, and it, it was not that romantic. And so I wondered, wh- where did you visit? Where this myth of romance did did not live up to the reality, or on the flip side, when it when did it? When were you like, wow, this is pretty romantic?
1: Okay, I love this question. I have to say, with with regards to Florence, I think part of my reason for it was partially built up from a long story, an inside story. I'm not going to get into from high school, dating back to high school regarding an international trip that I couldn't go on to Florence. And so I I went there with this anticipation of falling in love with it. And, but I really believe part of the reason I did was because we were there mid December
0: and there was just hardly
1: no tourists there. (laughs) So I think had I have gone in July, I would have hated it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But as far as a place that we're like, okay, that's known to be really romantic that we went and that I was like, okay, I don't know what people see in this. The first thing that comes to mind would be Santorini. Now, part of it, it's Santorini. Everybody pictures the white walled houses overlooking the sea and it's beautiful. And it is all that. But there's just so many people having the exact same quote unquote romantic experience that I I don't know how to do that when I'm surrounded by people trying to manufacture the same romance that I'm trying to have. Mm. It might be different if you've rented a villa on the side of the cliff and you have privacy and seclusion. We were tenting it. So when for us to go see the sunset, we were in the square with – 5,000 other people all climbing on top of each other to try and get a view. It was not romantic at all. (laughs) The restaurants were crazy crowded and it was, I couldn't imagine that being this as romantic a place, but yet I have friends who've gone for their honeymoon and they loved it. So I don't know. It's some, some people, I think you're looking for different things. A place that was surprisingly romantic was Cappadocia in Turkey
0: Oh, yes, um, I've been there. Wonderful place. Tell us a bit more about that.
1: Oh, so we, that was like the turnaround point when we got as far east as we were going to go in Turkey. And we spent a few nights at this wonderful guest house tucked inside the mountain. It was basically a cave that had been converted into this really little luxurious room. And the whole area, for those unfamiliar outside of Garemi, I think is the name of the town. There's all these like fairy towers. They're these sandstone rock formations that look almost like the tips of a jester's hat, just poking up from around the ground. And people used to live in them. So they're everywhere. There's hiking trails that go throughout. But one of the big things that we did and that is really popular there is a sunrise balloon flight um, up in the hot air balloon. This was like our one big splurge of something that wasn't food based that we couldn't just eat is we did the morning hot air balloon ride. And that was absolutely incredible. The scenery of all these little rock formations sprouting up like little tiny spires and the sun coming up over the cliffs. It was absolutely stunning. And then you have all these outdoor restaurants that were not crowded because, again, this was during the Syrian refugee crisis in 2015. So I think people were hesitant to go that far east in Turkey. So, again, it was a place that we we felt like we had a bit to ourselves, which was probably adding to the romance factor of it.
0: Mm, that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I went to Cappadocia sometime in the mid-90s, it was, uh, as a backpacker. So it wasn't quite there. <laughs> oh wow it was, it was, but it, I still remember it being staying in one of those caves it, it wasn't very luxurious they have lots of different levels of caves and which yes <laughs> didn't have a particularly flash one but it is a very unusual uh, location and and as you say absolutely beautiful and, and memorable so then I wanted to ask you then how did the big trip change you and your wife and how do you travel now and what does that mean to your writing
1: Yeah. So now we, what we did when we, when the trip wrapped up, we realized that we had this thing that we were working towards for six years and then we did it and it was over and there was a part of us missing. And that part of us was this, this part of us that didn't have anything to look forward to. So before we came home, we ended up making a list of about a hundred places that we still wanted to go. We bought this fancy Japanese paper, this washi paper and cut it into a hundred strips and wrote a different destination on each of them. And we folded them up, tied them in knots and put them in this lovely basket that we bought while we were in Bali. We did go to Bali for a month before coming home after, at the end of the trip, we made it from Seattle to Singapore with no airplanes other than the detour home to attend the funeral. But so now on Christmas or New Year's Eve, if we're home. We reach into the basket and we pull out a destination and that's where we go the following year. So we're keeping some spontane- spontaneity into it. We're not looking to necessarily do like a bicycle tour or backpacking tour, although there are a few trips like that in the basket. This year we drew Belize. We're still hoping to go in December, but with <laughs> 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 probably not going to happen, but we'll see.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe um, just down the road in Seattle.
1: Exactly, well, we were supposed to go to Vancouver for our anniversary uh, a week ago, and we're still the borders are still closed for us here in August, so as we record this but that's something that we do we're we're trying to combine active travel and the uh, independent travel with a bit more of a luxury. I I do feel that we're shying a bit more upscale just because we look at it as we did live out of a tent for two years. We deserve this now. (laughs) So that's one way in which it's changed.
0: Yeah, no, we're the same actually. And I feel like when you're in your mid 40s and you've slept in enough backpackers or pretty divey places that you're allowed to (laughs) Stay somewhere quiet. I think that's the big thing for me. I do remember being a backpacker in so many of these places, and just people snoring, Mm. keeping me awake all night. And I just can't abide that. So I'm like you. I'm now okay. I would rather stay a a shorter time and have my own room, or have our own room if we go together. So I think this is really important as well to figure out over time how you like to travel, what how you want to do each trip. So like you say, we want to do a cycle trip through Vietnam and. Cambodia, but I don't particularly want to cycle in India again. I probably won't be cycling in Morocco now, (laughs) to be fair, but I'd like to do Jordan. And there's a wonderful cycle trip through Jordan to Petra and through the desert there. So it's great to have that um, list. I love that we have a list too, but it's not in a lovely basket. So I love that.
1: It just adds a little bit of spontaneity to it. And for a while, um, we've been home from our trip for almost five years now. I love Japan and we were alternating like every other year we'd go to Japan and then we'd draw from the basket. We ended up pulling Portugal one year, the Seychelles. So we did a nice trip where we bounced around the Seychelles and mixed in like an Airbnb tree house and with kind of a cheap budget hotel within the final four nights, right? Like this fancy place over on the water with a villa and, and it was a nice mix, just mixing in things like that.
0: Oh, that's lovely. Uh, This is the problem with this podcast. It always just makes me want to get going again. But of course, as you say, we're recording this in August 2020 during the pandemic and travel is not really happening, but I'm pretty confident that we will all, those of us who love to travel will get back out there on the road again. What do you think?
1: I think so. I know here in the U.S. we do a fair bit of camping. Living outside Seattle in the Cascade Mountains, we have just thousands of miles of mountain hiking trails all over the state and i've been reading articles just recently that like recreational vehicles camper vans and caravans the they've been hitting like record sales 3 months in a row and so it seems like a lot of americans with this this especially out west with so much public land it seems people are you know taking the money that they might have spent on international travel and they're shifting it into um, more of an RV lifestyle. So that can end up changing things going forward. One thing that I I am hoping comes out of this, and I do have tremendous sympathy for all the cruise ship workers who are currently furloughed and out of work, but I'd really love to see the whole mega cruise ship industry beat back a little bit from this, and just hopefully mass tourism in general kind of gets, takes a cut a little bit and things get rolled back to maybe smaller, more intimate, more meaningful travel. And part of the reason I say that is just out of sympathy sympathy for these towns and these port cities. I know Venice and Barcelona have been in the news a lot because of just over tourism, but we've done trips to the Caribbean where we're just backpacking around various islands. And then we ended up in a port city. And just not only was it just more crowded with tourists, but all of a sudden the interactions with the people who live there had changed and it almost became this antagonistic relationship where that was just like the default setting when they saw somebody who obviously wasn't from around there. And that's unfortunate. And maybe we can reverse some of that with, mm-hmm. through the, with the pandemic. At least that's my hope anyway.
0: Yeah, I agree. And certainly there've been some lovely articles about how Venice is, uh, the canals have just got much more healthy since um, a lot of the cruise ships are, are not going. But yeah, interesting times indeed. But uh, this is the books and travel show. So give us a few book recommendations about whatever you like, basically, given that we've talked about things, but travel books, what do you recommend?
1: Yeah, the ones that I have that I always refer people to are actually a bit older. And two of them are books that inspired me me 15, 20 years ago that probably led to our willingness and and the the courage to actually do this trip. And one is Vagabonding by Rolf Potts, who I'm sure somebody has mentioned on this podcast at least once. It is a classic. (laughs) (laughs) And then the other one is The World Awaits by Paul Otison. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. Those two books were instrumental in teaching me like hey, it's not you don't have to be some special person to do this. You don't have to be a Shackleton or a trust fund baby as a hotel person accused us of being one day in Montana. <laughs> like anybody with some just the courage to do it and the the dedication to saving and getting your life in order can tackle a big trip like this. And that, so those two books really encouraged us and taught us how to go about doing something like this. For just the pure travel memoir recommendation, I'm a big fan of this book by Glenn Hegstad called One More Day Everywhere. And it is an around the world motorcycle journey. And what I like about this book, besides the fact that he was pushing into some very sketchy areas at times of incredible tension, Palestine and and Egypt at at times that were not necessarily the safest places to go. He wrote the book with an honesty that I found refreshing, writing it as a middle-aged single guy with a libido. And he would write about the women he encountered and what he really thought about all these different places. He didn't varnish anything. And I found his book really refreshing for that reason.
0: Mm. Fantastic. And of course your book is tailwinds Past Florence and uh, people can check that out as well. So where can people find you and your books online?
1: So everything about my books including my upcoming novel which is set in Hawaii can be found at DougWalsh.com. Uh my books are available digital, paperback, audio at all the major retailers everywhere you'd everywhere you'd expect to buy a book.
0: Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time Doug. That was great.
1: Thank you, Joe. This was a really fun time. It was great talking to you, and I look forward to listening to more of your podcasts.
0: Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.